This is Tom Fox. For this first podcast of 2023, I take things in a very different direction. As all of you know, 2022 is a year of massive regulatory change, and it was felt in manufacturing as well. What does 2023 hold? Well, to answer some of these questions, today we have a webinar which was put on by Ascent. In this webinar, four Ascent experts, Callie Edgren, Dr. Bruce Jarneau, Jared Connors, and Travis Miller, take a look at key issues from 2022 and into 2023. Topics include events that impacted supply chain in 2022, regulatory changes on the horizon for 2023, steps manufacturers should take for 2023, and how Ascent can help you in all of these. I know you'll enjoy this webinar from Ascent. Before we get started uh, with some updates on some of the hottest topics of the past year and the year to come, uh, I want to give an overall picture of what's coming. And we're going to cover some of these what's coming broken out into three separate areas. We're going to talk about product compliance. We're going to talk about everything happening in the world of ESG. And then we're going to tie it up with trade compliance and lean into how all of these things are working together. Again, if you have questions to ask, please type them in and hopefully at the end, we'll have time to get to everything. So countries that are part of the World Trade Organization will notify the WTO's Technical Barriers to Trade Committee when proposing new product rules required for access to their markets. Now, we've been tracking the growth of these notifications going back to 1995. You can see the always increasing pace of notifications year over year continues to grow. I like to point out this chart is not cumulative. This is the number of new notifications every year. Through the end of November, there were 428 notifications from the United States, and product regulatory activity in the U.S. was second only to Uganda and ahead of Brazil. So for those who think that these types of regulations are largely driven by the EU market, you really can't discount what's happening here in the U.S. nor in those other emerging markets around the world. Now, while the projected final for 2022 is slightly lower than last year's record high, I actually started my day yesterday by reviewing 97 notifications from the previous day. So that final number may actually end up being higher than we than we're projecting. But this is always a moving target. And the only certainty is that over time, the regulatory obligations for selling products in global markets is going to continue to increase. Now, one of our roles here at Ascent is to monitor these proposed requirements and to help our customers understand the impact to their businesses. Obviously, we're not going to cover all 3,700 notifications from this year in a one-hour webinar, but our team of regulatory experts have compiled some of the most impactful developments in 2022, as well as a few hot topics to watch for in 2023. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Dr. Bruce Jarno, who will be taking us through some activities in the product compliance world. Bruce, thank you for joining us today, and please share some of your thoughts on what's been hot this year. Okay. Thank you very much, Kelly. I'm looking to see if I can move the slides. I'm seeing the agenda slide. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to refresh my screen. Uh, you should see at the bottom of the screen. Uh, Two arrows? I am. I'm advancing it, but I see the agenda slide on my screen. Sure. So we're just going to market access, global market access. Okay. Thank you very much. So 
you know, uh, thank you very much, everybody in the audience, for joining today. And and as Callie said, um, and I want to emphasize this point, um, there are a tremendous number of regulations globally, and this number keeps increasing. It seems exponentially. Uh, you might think that Europe is the most regulated uh, place in the world, but in fact, it's the United States with over 720 regulations because we have a lot of activities at the state level. So this is this is important that um, European activities, you know, you follow the the requirements for REACH or ROS. No, it's not just that; it's also the U.S. requirements, and that's where I'm going to lead off today. So if you could go to um, the next slide. And we're going to talk about the Toxic Substances Control Act. So um, if you could go to the slide that's uh, headed TOSCA Section 6 Restrictions, this is not a new topic. This was new last year, but it is the new play of the game here in the United States. The federal government has always had the ability to regulate and restrict substances at the article level. The same definition that the European uh, Chemicals Agency uses for articles, a part that has a specific design or a form or a function that um, is more um, indicative of its uh, its role or its purpose in a product than the, than the chemical makeup, that article that contains a restricted substance makes the entire product that contains that restricted substance in an article um, uh, banned or restricted from being placed in U.S. commerce. So this is very important. This is an old regulation. The Toxic Substance Control Act dates to 1976, but there is this section, Section 6 of TOSCA, that does restrict the use of existing substances and products. And if you think back in the day, asbestos was used as a, a insulation material. Mercury was used in consumer products like thermometers, um, and and lead was used in paint. All of that changed and became a brave new world here in the United States in 2016 when Congress recast TSCA as the Lautenberg Chemical Safety Act. And Congress told the EPA to pay equal attention to um, finished products and the environmental and human health effects of substances in those finished products. And in 2021, now this is going back a little bit, but this is still impactful today because those um, – those restrictions that came out, the PBTs, persistent biocumulative and toxic substances, were um, and are, first and foremost, a lot of uh, companies and a lot of suppliers are still not aware of these rules, and um, you do face potential um, customs impound of products that are being imported that contain these substances. EPA's five-year plan, and I'll elaborate on this, has a total of about 40 substances on it. So this is not five and done. This is um, a, a multi-year activity that is going to be ongoing into the future. Next slide. Um, if we talk about the EPA published the final rules of these uh, five PBTs, January 2021, um, PIP31, from what we've seen here at Ascent, this PIP31 is the most impactful to industry Widely, it's a flame retardant to used to achieve that UL V UL ninety four V zero flame rating, and it's also used as a plasticizer. We've seen many many ascent clients have this substance in um, in materials within their products, wiring, um, uh, flame retarded resins, and so forth. Uh, and you see the enforcement date on this is twenty twenty four. This is really really important to watch this one. Next slide, please. Um, 
talking about what does EPA require? What's What are the EPA compliance requirements? Well, EPA, just like the European Chemicals Agency, says you have to collect documentation or have some data that demonstrates you are paying attention to the requirements for placing products in U.S. commerce. So uh, most of the time, uh, it's it's supplier declaration to say, no, we don't have any of these five substances. That This passes the liability back to your suppliers. EPA says you keep that documentation for at least three years. And if you do have one of those substances, you are obliged to tell your downstream customers, commercial customers, about the presence of that substance. Also, if you find that you are illegally um, importing any of those uh, or distributing any of those products that are already in force or have substances that are already um, in force in terms of prohibitions, you are obliged to tell the EPA, oops, I messed up, you have to self-report. I would also ask that you, if you have U.S. facilities, think about the impact to your MRO, your maintenance, repair, and operational activities. For example, here I give a forklift. Well, hydraulic fluid today is treated with PIP31 as a flame retardant. If you ever see a, a pinhole leak in a, in a hydraulic system, it creates this aerosol, and you can't have that um, create a fire hazard. So um, your supply chain is going to be managing that transition of the chemical and your availability of that hydraulic fluid. And for compatibility's sake, the gaskets and seals in a hydraulic system are all, all often treated with PIP31. So just think about impact. Now, next slide, please. Um, existing restrictions. So right now we have a total of 14 substances that are restricted. The original nine restrictions that came out between 1977 and 1990-ish, and then the five PBTs that you see here. You have to be compliant. The non-compliance can result in penalties up to $50,000 per day per violation. And if it's gross negligence or willful violation, um, uh, individuals can see prison time. So this is not something to be taken lightly at the federal level. Next slide, please. The Tosca, as I mentioned, there's going to be a total of about 40 substances restricted in EPA's five-year plan that came out last year. You have what EPA calls the first 10 substances that are next on the list, and then the next 20 plus three <laughs> that, that EPA um, – so the, these are separate lists that have been published by EPA that said these are on our five-year plan. So please circulate this amongst your um, your EHS personnel, your design engineers, your uh, facility manager, and say, hey, do we use these in our operations? Maybe a solvent like methylene chloride. Do we have these in our products like uh, PV29? Pigment violet 29 is likely the pigment that's used in a purple color-coded wire. So it's important to track these, and also EPA is asking for comments. They said, please, industry, don't let us operate in a vacuum. If you don't tell us that a substance is important for your products and your ability to manufacture or to sell products in the U.S., uh, we don't know about it necessarily. So um, it's imperative for you to consider making individual comments or through your trade associations. Next topic, we're moving on to topic number two here. PFAS, perfluoral and polyfluoroalkyl substances, the hottest topic in in 
the globe these days. Fluorocarbons. These are all fluorocarbon substances. Um, and next slide. The, um, the first impact you'll see with PFAS uh, is in the United States, or probably the first one will be PFAS reporting required under TSCA. This is under Section 8A7. EPA is trying to wrap their arms around um, what fluorocarbons are used in commerce, at what volumes, in what types of products EPA will require companies doing business in the U.S. to do a 10-year reporting retrospective, um, so reporting 10 years back for products that are placed in the U.S. market. Now, the U.S. manufacturers of things like O-rings or gaskets or pieces of Teflon will do their own reporting. But if you are importing into the U.S. or exporting from Europe or some other country, China, into the U.S., you are the manufacturer of record according to the government. So as the importer, you will have to do reporting to the EPA in calendar year 2023. Um, this publication of this rule was supposed to be uh, by the end of 2022. The Small Business Administration raised their hand around Thanksgiving time and said, have, has EPA considered the cost impact to small businesses? And um, EPA opened a comment period, closes right after Christmas, uh, so we expect this rule to be published around end of January, beginning of February, requiring reporting in a 12-month period after that publication, so in 2023. Any um, imported articles um, containing PFAS, and that could be a piece of Gore-Tex membrane, it could be a a a a, uh, um, a fluoroelastomer, some fluorinated fluid, some fluorinated grease, what have you. Any of those, there are known to EPA to be about 1,400 substances um, in commerce, fluorocarbons in commerce, according to the um, TOSC inventory reported in 2021. That's what they're asking for. Next slide, please. This cascades over to state regulations. The state of Maine um, is requiring registration of products that intentionally contain added fluorocarbons. The registration requirement begins January 1st, 2023. Please consider asking the Maine Department of Environmental Protection for a six-month extension. Many, many companies have already because the online portal for the state of Maine to submit your data and about your products that contain intentionally added fluorocarbons and payment for the administrative fee uh, to the to the state treasurer um, won't be available until at least around April. So right now they're asking for literally a check and a, a, a spreadsheet or a Word document. Um, please, by the end of December, ask for that six-month extension. Moving on to um, Europe, REACH. Under Annex 17, the restriction list of REACH, REACH will um, address um, essential uses of PFAS and will list PFAS substances that are going to be restricted. This is going to be coming out in January. It's a different list. The Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development has a list of about 4,700 PFAS substances. Slightly different take on it. They're not just looking at ones that are known to be in commerce. They're going by a definition. Um, I think it's going to be substantially similar to the list that the ones that are available in Europe are some substantially similar to the same ones that are available in the U.S. But know that in January, 
the European Chemicals Agency will be making two publications, one of the essential uses um, that are determined to be okay in Europe, and the second one on PFAS that will be restricted. Right now, there are regulations that already address PFAS. Next slide. This is a very good summary of regulations um, where fluorocarbons are already covered under existing um, solutions, either a regulation like a REACH, Substance of Very High Concern list, the first column here in green, um, the REACH Annex 17, where you see P proposed uh, for next year, and the green ones that are already listed. The ones that are already regulated are all small, small short-chain fluorocarbons that are used primarily as coatings that are oil-repellent, water-repellent, these small molecules are water-soluble. They tend to be the ones that are contaminating groundwater um, and contaminating soil and are responsible for the lawsuits that you've seen against some major chemical manufacturers here in the United States. Um, so you probably already have data on PFAS. You're not starting from ground zero. If you're collecting data on Proposition 65 or on the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, SEPA, or maybe collecting against the aerospace and defense uh, declarable substance list, or even the the um, uh, ILFI red list of substances that are not considered sustainable, you have some data that you're starting with. So you're not starting from ground zero. You are managing currently then regulations that, that uh, impact uh, uh, SVHCs, whether they're just reportable as substances of airhead concern or whether they're actual restrictions, but you're not starting from zero. Let's move on to REACH 2.0. So the European Commission is um, reinventing the REACH regulation. And um, the next slide, the REACH revision, uh, there's going to be major updates and what will impact you primarily I'm thinking most of the folks in the audience are not major or, or raw chemical manufacturers or importers, but um, there's going to be many more SVHCs. The With Brexit, with Britain leaving um, the European Union, um, UK was the break. Um, they were the ones that were pushing the brakes on adding SVHCs for the most part. There are going to be many more SVHCs and there's going to be more expanded criteria for these substances. Um, there's going to be registration of polymers, potentially. That's under discussion right now. Mixtures will become subject to Article 33 notification. So right now it's just articles like a screw or a wire or you know some piece of injection molded plastic. No, in the future it's going to be the uncured epoxy. It's going to be cleaners. It's going to be other things that are chemical mixtures. And just like with PFAS, there are going to be essential use criteria. This is going to be a major dramatic change in market access for the European Union. So please stay tuned for uh, further emergence of this. There has been a webinar already. You see a, uh, a link down at the bottom of the slide where you can go get more information. But much, much of this is still in flux and emerging. This hasn't taken place yet. This is coming up um, probably uh, sometime um, toward the end of the first quarter or sometime uh, in second quarter uh, 2023. 
my last topic, uh, the European batteries regulation. This is another big change. Even though it's Europe and we're talking North America webinar, most of the attendees are probably doing business globally and European regulations impact you. So if we look at the update to the European batteries directive, up until now, the batteries directive has really just looked at the, the heavy metals. You know, what's the heavy metal content? Uh, but the, um, uh, Europeans are going to be looking at critical raw materials such as cobalt, lithium, nickel, um, where one, they're critical for making batteries. Two, they have a, a social impact uh, for the countries where these are being sourced from. And Jared's going to speak to this more later. Recycling of batteries, the criteria for recycling batteries is going to come into play here. And batteries will now be included in the CE marking scheme. So this is uh, an important consideration that um, under that safety marking, the CE marking, and likely the UK CA marking as well, batteries will now be included in that scheme. And with that, I'm going to pass over to Jared for ESG. It's, okay, we're going to talk a little bit about the fun topics of uh, the context of ESG. And first, we're going to get into the proposed rule of the SEC Climate Disclosures Act. Now, you, we're talking about 2022 is a year in review. And you say, Jared, why are you talking about forward-looking regulations when we're really talking about what was the hot topics of 2022? And the reason are, is because this proposed rule really impacted the way companies addressed ESG in, in 2022. And uh, quoting Gary Ginsler here, kind of uh, paraphrasing him from a presentation I saw him give earlier this year, if you're not already doing these things, you're already behind. And, and so that's why it's so important to approach ESG in the context of what do I have to do next and, and engaging my stakeholders, both internal and external, I'm going to have to be out there ready to answer those questions once I have to report on these things and knowing the level of maturity in the market to things like greenhouse gas emissions reporting and normalization of emissions, clearly organizations need to get started today, right? And so that's why in 2022, this proposed regulation was such an immense hot topic uh, because companies understood the urgency to get started in their data collection, both internally and, of course, with their supply chains. Even more important, one could argue with your supply chain, given the fact that you don't have direct control over supply chains. But the Mandatory Climate Disclosures Act isn't the only thing in 2022 driving compliance. Now, here's a little something about integrated reporting. And I know there's a there's a specific framework on integrated reporting and not to mistake it with that, but I'm talking about the integration of financials and non-financials in your annual filing. And it's so important to make sure that when you're satisfying investors or the market in general for your ESG reporting, you're considering these two things merged together, right? And you go, well, Jared, I'm a private company. I don't need to worry about a 10K report that's going on at edgarfiling.gov. Um, why should I care about this? And the answer is, well, if you seek investment or, or your private equity and fund it, um, you're going to have that same pressure. And then also these requirements that that look at ESG and the publicly traded companies, uh, I'm sure you have a myriad of customers that are doing that as well. And if you don't, you certainly have um, the pressure to keep up with the Joneses, what's happening out there in the market. So really, even though the regulation may impact or the pressures may impact publicly traded companies, it doesn't mean that you're going to be scot-free as a private company. And right here, just very quickly, I wanted to show some of those common data sources that companies 
um, uh, rate their rating agencies that rate companies ESG performance there on the left and how investors utilize these scores and that um, two by two matrix I showed on the last slide there for the way that they evaluate performance overall of a company. So if you're not familiar with these organizations, even as a private company looking at MSCI, for example, and what they do to evaluate ESG is a good way for you to get a handle on what the expectations are in the market. So moving right along here in the interest of time, I want to spotlight one regulation that went into effect in 2022, the Uyghur Force Labor Protection Act. Um, and we're going to give just a quick overview of this regulation here, the 101, if you will, of UFLPA. So it actually went into effect in June of this year. Um, and essentially, um, this is not really anything new in the context of companies being able to demonstrate due diligence for concerns over forced labor. It is very new in the way that it is enforced and, and uh, how companies need to address this is more of a proactive approach rather than a, a wait to see if you get investigated. So WROs, withhold release orders by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, have been around since Hector was a pup, as my dad would say, and uh, and ones related to labor rights violation to do with Uyghurs and um, um, you know North Korean forced laborers in China or, or other areas of forced labor have actually been around for about ten years. But now what the UFLPA does is it says, well, you actually owe me some due diligence in order to essentially clear customs here. So it's almost like a guilty until proven innocent uh, regulation and, and what companies have to include in their common customs packet, as it's referred to, um, for their defensible due diligence to uh, look at their upstream, essentially where they're sourcing from and, and demonstrate that they don't have a connection or, as the law calls it, a nexus to forms of modern-day slavery. All right, moving right along here, we're going to get into another forward-looking regulation, the German Supply Chains Act, or this very long word, if that you could even call that a word, uh, at the bottom there. Uh, we'll just call it the German Supply Chains Act. And again, Jared, why are we talking about 2022 as hot topics there and looking at a forward regulation? And the answer is on that side of the pond over there on the other side of the Atlantic, here's a regulation that really drove company's mindset towards environmental, social, and governance reporting um, and data collection in 2022 to be proactive in order to get ahead of this regulation. You could also make that argument with CSRD and, and what the new requirements that are out there and what they're going to push on companies and how you need to start addressing those things today. So not to get into much of the detail here on German Supply Chains Act, it's obviously a foundational element of ESG that it's asking for, but it's asking for it in a specific way in terms of reporting. So there's a limited number of companies in Germany. Um, it's pretty substantial, actually, but uh, for many of us here in the United States, if we don't have operations of a certain size in Germany, we don't have to address that. Why is it so important for U.S. firms then to pay attention to regulations like this? Well, it's because those regulations start to shape the way things go through the industry. And I'm going to go and give another German example here in just a second uh, of how things are shaping um, broader industry, and that's in the conflict minerals space. So before we talk about how Germany is influencing that, we're going to first talk about the broadening of the responsible minerals scope. So everything started back in 2010 with tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold, as we all know it as three TGs. Uh, but the world is really moving towards a broader set of responsible minerals. In fact, the OECD, who set the due diligence guidance for responsible sourcing, um, they never once limited their guidance to uh, – 
uh, 3TG, right? They've always talked about uh, the broader context of responsible sourcing across a myriad uh, of the periodic table of elements. And so we're starting to see in 2022 that really come to fruition. Of course, cobalt and mica were there in force well before 2022 as additional responsible minerals. Uh, but we saw more companies than ever before going forward beyond the 3TG in 2022, and that'll continue to expand. So right now we have three reporting templates out there for data collection um, for responsible minerals. The, of course, the CMRT, the age-old um, goat that it is, uh, the EMRT, the Expanded Responsible Minerals template um, that has cobalt and mica today, and the pilot reporting template that has a bunch of other non-ferrous metals on it that may move eventually into the EMRT as these things go through the pilot phase. So if you start getting asked questions, if you're getting asked questions by your customers, there's the reason why is because the world is really pushing towards um, a broader set of responsible minerals. And the reason why 2022 was such an uptick in that that comp- companies going forward on responsible minerals was due to ESG and, and responsible sourcing is a great foundational element of your social accountability, the S in your ESG program. And so companies are really seeing that opportunity to do better disclosures. Now, getting back to Germany. So the EU conflict minerals has actually now um, begun to be enforced. Germany was the catalyst on this. Um, they started with 130 companies in 2022. So the EU conflict minerals actually went into effect technically in January of 2021, but no country in the EU ever went forward with enforcement action and investigation until 2022. So there's actually three European countries going forward with enforcement action and, and uh, investigation in 2022, Germany being the biggest. And it's really trying to show the EU, in my editorial, trying to show the EU what can be accomplished in this regard. And that's shifting the mindset overall in the responsible minerals space to more of a focus on chain of custody, the validation of these materials actually entering my supply chain, your supply chain, her supply chain, his supply chain. And so that's going to be a big focus and and push going forward. So even though we may not all be subject to import regulation within these respective EU countries, we are going to be impacted as downstream reported companies and expected to do more in the context of chain of custody. And that essentially is boiling down to the validation of the specific sources and materials that entered our supply chain. Uh, you know, we focus so much on source of origin, the one half of the conflict minerals regulations, and now chain of custody is kind of, you know, taking the lead now in the marathon of, of popularity of what companies should focus around. So a lot more to come on that in 2023. And I just wanted to give that quick teaser before I pass it over to my friend Travis, who's going to talk to us this morning about a few more topics before we get to that all important QA section. So Travis, take it away. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, I noticed a, a quick note had popped up there, you know, ESG, environmental, social governance. Uh, you know, those are the rules and regulations around all things, all things that don't really find their way into your non-financial disclosures. Um, so if we take all that into consideration, even potentially a hierarchy uh, is trade compliance. So everything that we've talked about from Cali's uh, initial, you know, kind of presentation, acknowledging all of the trade barriers or technical trade barriers to the product compliance regulations, even to the ESG characteristics can roughly constitute trade. Uh, so when I talk about trade, 
what I'm going to do for you is kind of get a little bit more focused on what's really happening, what's driving so much attention right now. Uh, so related to that, what most people are encountering in your day-to-day existence is the U.S.-China trade war. And what's happening in relation to the U.S.-China trade war is effectively a decoupling. It's a maneuvering, it's a movement away that's been politically and strategy driven uh, to start to decentralize trade between the two largest trading blocks in the entire world, the United States and China. Uh, the United States uh, during COVID came up with the strategy and even a little bit before uh, that, you know what, we are just far too reliant on Chinese-based manufacturing. They have monopoly positions in a handful of areas that we find critical. You can go back and look at the America's Supply Chain Executive Order. It does a terrific job kind of highlighting these, but it's never recovered as a result. So if you kind of look at these trend lines, you can see who the U.S. has been trading with. And you can see that even though China has been upticking, it is nowhere near the way that trade has started to reemerge with the rest of the world and the United States. Uh, and what we're going to find is that Philosophy is probably going to perpetuate over into a long period of time here to come. Uh, we're seeing that physically in the data. In fact, this might even be a little bit old, uh, but you can see the Section 301 duties, which were initially passed under the Trump administration, carried on through the Biden administration, have collected $161 billion. Oh, I feel like Dr. Evil here for a second. Um, so that $161 billion is a tax. It is a tariff that is passed on to each and every single one of us for every single order, every purchase order that comes in from China. Uh, and you can see how much it just absolutely dwarfs everything else out there in existence. We can also just kind of highlight and alluding to some of the detainment and enforcement actions that uh, Jared was talking about related to UFLPA. We are now looking at over a billion dollars every single year into perpetuity going forward of Chinese-made goods that will be stopped at the border because they have some level of forced labor, slave-based labor that has made those products or goods. The combination of these two elements is basically saying – if you trade with China, you will either have your goods stopped at the border or you will pay an astronomical tax and a tariff to do so. And that's why we're seeing acknowledgments. Things like Apple, who is completely reliant uh, upon international trade uh, with China, has announced that they are actually going to move out. They are no longer continuing to produce iPhones in China, which is unbelievable for you to actually think about. Now, along those lines, what else is happening? Well, the U.S. has taken its borders very seriously. If you haven't been paying attention to the political ads, we've been bombarded with for the last, seems like forever now. And one of those key essential features is something called Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, which is passed post 9-11, also known loosely as CTPAT. And around the world, there's like-kind regulations that are known as Trusted Trader Programs. So what are these and why has it become such a big deal in 2022 and now moving into 2023? Uh, well, effectively, it's such a massive deal because it encompasses about 1,100 current CTPAT members, meaning that if you transact or you move your goods uh, internationally, it probably flows through a CTPAT member. Uh, in fact, I think it's something to the nature of about 82% of all cargo that enters into the United States moves through a CTPAT member facility. What this means to you and why this is particularly important is because they, too, are getting in the forced labor and anti-China game. The CTPAT program is saying, 
that as of August 2023, meaning you need to be starting now, if you haven't already done so, you need to have a map of your supply chain for the risk of forced labor, meaning that what are those physical facilities that you currently are evaluating and have each of them gone through the due diligence capability? Have you adopted a code of conduct prohibiting forced labor? Do you have evidence of implementation of the supply chain requirements that are tying to anti-forced labor? Can you demonstrate it? Do you have a remediation plan if you identify it? And can you share your success and best practices with CBP? This is massive. And what happens if a company, say, for example, drops out of CTPAT as these regulations emerge? Well, that's a pretty clear indicator that they probably have some forced labor in their supply chain or they're just not going to choose to participate in it. So no matter how you slice it, uh, those facilities, those importers, those three PLs that you're relying on to get goods are going to go through a whole new level of scrutiny coming into 2023. And we have to really significantly consider what that's going to mean to us and our ability to get goods into the facilities we need to keep the lights on and keep the manufacturing facility uh, operating. I actually think Tesla's COO said it just about best. It takes 2,500 parts to make a Tesla, but only one not to. And uh, we might find ourselves in a continuation of that cycle. Carrying on, what else can we talk about that kind of rounds all of this up? Well, a lot of what Ascent and all of you on this call have talked about have always been about the product, the product, the product, the things that we make, the physical goods. But there's a secondary supply chain that exists that all of us need to be aware of, and that's our data supply chain. That's the people that handle information. And something that's been bubbling up for the last several years, and we've seen a new breath of life breathed into it, is the NIST 800-171 Standard and Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, also known as CMMC. So what is this thing? Well, effectively, CMMC is a requirement that initially emerged in 2015 that has now become the de facto cybersecurity standard for CUI. So confidential information that the government flows out and finds its way all around the globe to all different kinds of U.S. contractors. And what happens is that CMMC is becoming law. It will be the DFAR far flow down that will dictate whether you're going to be able to take advantage of those massive contracts coming out of the American Infrastructure Recovery Act. All the new government contracts that are starting to flow. If you want to trade in the U.S. government supply chain or to trade with partners that are in it and you take any information, which is pretty much everybody, that's going to mean that you are not only going to have to have your own internal cybersecurity program that reaches up to the NIST 800-171 standard. It also means that all of your suppliers who also receive that information must do as well. This means that each and every one of us needs to think about a supply chain that extends beyond the physical good to the information that designs and tells you how to create it. And once that area is in mind, a whole new supplier base starts to develop and emerge. Uh, and that's why I think it's going to be probably the biggest area that is to come. So bringing it all together, uh, Callie Edgren, rolling it back over to you. Um, you are the moderator. Uh, wh what do you have to say? When you see all of the regulations we've talked about today, and I notice increasing overlaps between things like the CTPAT and the UFLPA, or Bruce mentioned the batteries regulations is kind of incorporating some ESG-related requirements. 
What do you think this means uh, for compliance specialists who've been able to really just focus on one area of compliance? Is that really a sustainable approach moving forward? Absolutely not. Yeah, the the, the world <laughs> has shifted. <laughs> yeah, no. Yep, yep. In, in a short, um, I would say this to all of us. Um, we've all been in this industry an awfully long time. And with the ESG movement, the trade compliance enforcement movement, the product compliance movement all have in common is that there's very few people inside an organization that understand it. You know, how the movement of goods happen, you know, how it migrates around, uh, you know, how information is shared and how it's going to be facilitated. And most importantly, how it's going to be enforced in the future. We no longer live in a world or an age where there just wasn't enforcement of these things. You know, there's over 4,000 reach product recalls active right now. Uh, I think there's going to end up with four to 5,000 detainment orders under UFLPA. You know, there was a $10 billion estimated loss of iPhones associated with uh, the UFLPA and the, you know, the forced labor kind of riots tied to the COVID restrictions and what have you in China just a week ago. It is a new world, and the only way to manage it is to work cooperatively across cross-functional teams. Uh, there is no alternative. There is no other option. So that supply chain center of excellence that all of you are at the pinnacle of creating, um, you know, this is the charter. This is the charter for business. Let me kind of wrap, wrap things up, and uh, we do have a lot of great questions. Please keep them coming in because even if we don't have time to get to all of them, uh, during this hour, we definitely uh, will provide answers as a follow-up. Um, but one of the questions I get asked a lot, and I see some of the theme in, in the questions coming through, is how do we quantify the risks? Um, one question talks about how do I get you know my senior leadership to understand the importance of investing in these programs? What could the fines be for noncompliance? Now, all of these regulations do have direct legal and financial implications. They're regulations, right? But I really don't want to overlook or have people forget to include the hidden costs, which actually are much higher and much more difficult to recover from. Uh, not conforming to regulations can lead to missed revenue opportunities. That's probably the, the biggest impact. So you may have existing products that aren't able to get across the border or able to be placed on the market or have to be pulled off of the market. But increasingly, we are seeing customer uh, requests for proposals um, include that information must be provided upfront, tied to compliance. For example, we need all of our Ross declarations for you to even bid on this job, or we need you to fill out this ESG survey because we only want to do business with suppliers who share our values. So companies without those good proactive programs, instead of reacting after the fact, uh, to provide this data may not even be able to bid for those new business opportunities. There are other costs associated like with a non-conformity event as well. But, you know, all of these things together can lead to brand reputation damage and a loss of trust from your customers, which again is going to impact future revenue opportunities. So it's really a hard number to quantify but a very real cost and threat to your business. So it's best to stay ahead of the game. And uh, one way that, um, you know, 
we uh, talk about avoiding these unpredictable costs. And as, as Travis just mentioned, it's important that you have uh, cross-functional um, partnerships. I've worked in product compliance for the better part of my career, but I was always considered myself to be a compliance cousin with the trade compliance people, with the EHS people, because there's a lot of these issues that cross over those borders uh, between functions. And that's increasing over time, as you see with some of these regulations. Um, so one way to prevent, prevent some of these unavoidable business costs is to develop an efficient system and program for managing your supply chain compliance, because a lot of the things we talked about today are dependent on your suppliers providing you with information, providing you with their good business practices. Um, so a comprehensive program that can integrate all that data management simplifies your engagement with those suppliers and it reduces that supplier fatigue. I don't know if any of you are getting questionnaires from your customers, but uh, it's a lot of questionnaires coming in from a lot of different sources. So, you know, trying to merge these things together as these topics overlap can actually improve the supplier experience as well. And that can lead to a holistic program that will minimize that risk that an unreliable supplier could create. I love that quote that Travis just gave about it only takes one part to prevent you from building that product, right? Um, so we want to help you identify what those risks are so you can avoid those. Um, and of course, working with, uh, uh, with reliable suppliers is going to help your company achieve your own ethics, compliance, and sustainability goals as well. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this overview of sustainability and ESG issues from 2022 and where regulatory and market change may be driving us for 2023. This has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'd like to thank Ascent Compliance for allowing me to cross-post this webinar that they put on in December of 2022. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the ESG Report.